Thanks again to the worship team. You guys are amazing. Yeah. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful uh, for this time of year and all the things that it brings and all the, the joy. But we also recognize that there are struggles and there are um, things that aren't joyful, that things we deal with. But Father, we're here to worship you and uh, to reorient ourselves and recenter ourselves. And we are so thankful for the season and the lights and the decorations and, and the, the music. It just uh, lifts up the heart. But Father, we want to keep it focused on you and the Savior <clears throat> who gave it all up for us. Father, we want to commit this time to you this morning as we look into your word and as we sing to you and as we take communion for your glory that we uh, come together as a unified body. And as we do this uh, this morning with uh, churches all around the world, Christians all around the world, that uh, we celebrate your coming, but we also recognize the sacrifice you made for us. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. When I was in, uh, went back to Dallas in October for my aunt's funeral, uh, it was a great time. Uh, with my relatives, my cousins, all the cousins I haven't seen, and uh, people I haven't seen in really decades. It was really a great time, uh, in spite of the fact that we were kind of celebrating the life of my aunt, who I dearly loved. And uh, I did have a day, I spent the whole day with them, pretty much, and uh, the next day I was able to, I had the day free, and so I spent the day kind of traveling around and visiting all the places that I, where I lived and studied and worked and played and and all these kind of things, and um, I came back and I told people, yeah, my, uh, my nostalgia for Dallas has been cured. Uh, if I were to end up there in, you know, in retirement years or my last years, it would be fine, I would enjoy it, it's fine, but I don't have that longing to go back there. Uh, it's, Dallas has changed, uh, the, um, the highway, the traffic's uh, it's grown, the traffic is as bad as it's always been. Uh, the highways are more complicated. They got these these uh, express highways now. You know, if you buy a if you buy a, a decal or buy a, a permit, you get to go on the express lane, and it makes it all this confusing. Uh, it's just gotten uh, so big. The house that I grew up in, they painted it black. I mean, come on. Uh, Pepe's Cafe, the best Mexican food in Dallas, has been torn down, and uh, so you know why bother? Why go back? You know, <laughs> that's kind of the way I feel. <clears throat> Uh, it, it, really was, it really was okay, but I don't have that longing. That nostalgia was cured for that, but my longing for home was not. Uh, I still have this longing for, thanks for home. Welcome, Dave. <laughs> sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just looked over there. There's Dave Compton. Thanks for coming. We really Good to see you. Good to see you. He moved away from home, and now he's back home. But we, we uh, I love, you know, that longing for home, that, that, that desire for something that, that makes us homesick is still there. Um, and, and marketers have figured this out, and they, that's what they use. They, they know that we have this, and they manipulate it. They kind of use shame, or they might even use, uh, you know, just exasperate this desire, this longing that we have in order to sell their product. And sometimes we've, we've even adopted their methods in our, in our evangelism sometimes. But it's not because this, this 
longing has disappeared, it's because we will always, always have it. Uh, in 1961, uh, Heinlein put out, published a book, a science fiction book called Stranger in a Strange Land. It was, I think, one of the first science fiction books to ever make it on the New York, New York Times bestselling list. Uh, he takes the title from Exodus chapter 2, <clears throat> where Moses describes himself as a stranger in a strange land. And I think most of us, when we want to do reflection and we want to investigate ourselves, we kind of find that that's true for us too. That we have this longing, we have this, this desire that we're just not home yet. That we're not there, the things are not supposed to be there. And C.S. Lewis said, wrote this, he said, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And if he's right, then what, the other conclusion that I come to is that this longing is actually then a gift. It's a gift from God that draws us and moves us to something. And yes, the suffering um, can, uh, can, can uh, cause it to be filled sharper and be more severe, but it's not the cause. There's something else inside of us that, 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 this satis that doesn't satisfy and, nothing in, and this ache that nothing in the world can really complete and we still just feel uh, out of place. Um, it's these, these losses. And, and what I realized when I was back in Texas is that these losses that I, we have experienced as a couple in my life, it just, just for life, these losses, and these losses of my parents and my grandparents and and a cousin, and uh, then Miss Dear Aunt that I loved, they were a part of my past, but then it also, if C.S. Lewis is right, they're also going to be part of my future. And that's where Advent comes in. Advent means the coming, or the arrival, like Kendra was saying. And to me, that means waiting and longing and you'll hear theologians talk about living in the already and not yet. Well, that's where we are. We are in the already, not yet. We are already that Christ has come and brought this, but we're in this not yet where we're still waiting. We have, we have received Jesus as the Savior, and he has, he has filled us with joy, and He has filled us with purpose and meaning, and yet we're still waiting for the time when every tear will be dried. It is this kind of waiting all, already, not yet. And so when, when Rob is reading this, this passage of Isaiah 64, you might be thinking, well, gee, that's an odd passage for Advent. Here we are at Christmas. Uh, that seems totally out of place. But I think when we look at it and then when we understand Advent, we will see that it is totally in place, that it is about longing and, and waiting. And I think that if Christmas is for joy, then Advent is for longing and waiting. And I think that the, the joy, we would not be filled with such rich joy if we didn't experience the longing and the waiting. And I really believe those two things go together. That the joy of Christmas fills the longing and it makes the, it makes the joy even richer and more fuller. That is this actually a place. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah 64, and I believe this is, if, you, if you're familiar with a lectionary, a lectionary is kind of these, this tradition uh, book that kind of puts out passages that you're supposed to follow in the church calendar year. 
Well, Isaiah 64 is included in the Advent time in the lectionary. In other words, they want us to read Isaiah 64 at Advent. And I think that's the reason why. It's because it paints this, this vivid picture of what it means to long for and to wait for. And one of the things, I hope this is not too, too detailed. I, it, I do have a point to this. But Hebrew poetry is beautiful. And, and, and I don't think we realize just how, how beautiful it is. And we kind of think that we're much smarter this century than we ever were, than anybody ever was back in, you know, B.C. But these guys were pretty smart. And they constructed their poetry pretty well. And Isaiah oftentimes writes in poetic form, just like the Psalms do. And what, one of the things that they use normally is this thing where they, they, they start out with one, one idea and they go to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, to the reach the middle. And it's kind of this climax of the poem. And then they back themselves out, paralleling with these verses, and that's what we see in Isaiah 64. And I know this is a lot of words, but it starts off with this plea for God to act. And then he talks about remembering the past. And then he describes the condition of the people and the consequences of the rebellion. And then we come to verse 8, and we see God's character as Redeemer. And then he backs himself out by talking about the consequences again and the condition of the land instead of the condition of the people and remembering the past, and then finally he ends the poem with another plea for God to act. And I'm not saying that, I'm not showing you this just so we can say, oh, isn't this a beautiful structure of a nice poem in the ancient, in the ancient world? I, they, they do this, they do this to draw attention to the main point of the poem. The main point of the, the, the message that they're trying to get across, which is verse 8. That God is the Redeemer. So we're going to be looking through that uh, this morning uh, that, um, this, uh, as we kind of go down. And first of all, he calls, he's, calling, he's calling God to act. He said, would you tear open the skies and come down and shake the mountains and start fires? He's asking God to bring energy and basically come down and, and do something fantastic and that people to get people's attention. And he says, you're up there somehow. Would you come down? Well, where is he? Well, I don't know. Where is up there? I mean, if you're here, you know, or what if you're on the other side of the globe? Where is up there? But what the Isaiah is trying to get at is that God is, worst of all, he is superior. He is superior to what we are here on earth. He's talking about his superiority. But the other thing that he kind of communicates here is the distance, the separation from the people and God. That somehow... God is no longer here. That place where he manifested his presence in Jerusalem in the temple burned down, as we'll see later on. So where is he? I don't know, but he's not here. He is distant. And he's saying, please come down and shake the mountains and burn the forest and even controlled fire of, of boiling water. He's calling for energy. And then in verse 12, the, the mirror verse, he says, in light of all this, that you, you know, how can you still hold back? How can you still be silent? Why are you hiding? Why do you continue to humiliate us? He says, please, please do something. And then he goes on to describe the past. And we're not going to read all this. I just want, you, we don't bring Bibles to church anymore, so we're putting them on the screen. So, so it, you go through that. He describes the past. And he says, look at the... Look at the awesome deeds that took us by surprise. You, you came down. This nostalgia for the past. You came down and the mountains did tremble. They did shake. And what he's talking about there is the exodus. 
The Exodus is the defining moment for Israel. Everything revolves around that. It's what made Israel Israel. And Isaiah is reminding him, remember when you did this? You did all this. Even when Jesus was walking the earth, the Jews expected an Exodus-type event. And Jesus went with that, but he did it in a different way. And so that's what they're calling for. And he says he reminds, he reminds God, first of all, of his actions. You did this once. Why don't you do it again? And he reminds, them, reminds God of his supremacy, that there's no other God before you. Everyone knows you are the one true God. And he reminds God of his character. Remember, you're, you did this. You, you uh, took care of us. If we, were, uh, if we obeyed you and we were walking with you, you took care of us. You protected us. And he, and he reminded them of this mutual, supposedly mutual relationship. And that is, if you do this, you protect us, you save us, we will praise you. And also, if we praise you, you have to protect us. And so it's this very transactional kind of relationship they have. He says in the, last, in the, in the mirror, verse 11, your holy temple, our pride and joy, the place where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire and all the prized possessions have been destroyed. Don't you remember how, we, how this thing works? You do this and we do that. And if we do this, you're obligated to protect us. And so he's trying to remind God of his character. And he wants God to act in a surprising way. Surprise us. Surprise us. But they really don't. And here's the irony. He's calling, they're calling on, he is calling on God. The people are calling on God to surprise us. And yet, in reality, they're asking God to act in a very predictable way, the way gods are supposed to act. The gods are supposed to act means they take revenge out on the adversary. They do what they're supposed to. We do this, we do the offering, you protect us. You protect us, we do you the offering. We praise you. They are actually asking God to do a very predictable thing. We say we want a surprise, but we really want you to act the way we expect you to act. And we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. We say God surprises, but we really want him to act the way we want him to act. We have these virtues, these uh, ethics, this morality that we think are so important but if the end if the goal doesn't line up with that then those things are expendable we'll lay the ethics the virtues beside because the end justifies the means and we really want God to act the way we want him to act well God did act in a surprising way and we crucified him Because he didn't act the way a God is supposed to act. A God is supposed to come down in power. We just sang about that. A God is supposed to march into Rome. A God is to make the mountains tremble. A real God would understand and keep his end of the bargain. But he acts in a surprising way. And so the situation is despair. He says, look, you were angry because we violated them continually. How then can we be saved? We are all like one who is unclean. 
All who are so-called righteous acts are like minstrel rags in your sight. We all wither like a leaf. Our sins carry us away like the wind. And then on verse 10, he says, Your chosen cities have become a desert. Zion has become a desert. Jerusalem is desolate ruin. When God called Abraham, he promised two things. That he would make Abraham a people, and he would give them land. And these are the two things that are desolate here. These are the two things that are in despair. And he says, is there any hope? How are we going to be saved? Do we have any hope? He's not asking, how do we get to heaven? He's asking, are we going to be saved as a people? Are you going to rescue us? Are we going to survive as a people? That's the question he's asking. I was listening to a podcast this last week with a Jewish scholar, and he was explaining how he feels like the Bible, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, came together as the Hebrew Scriptures. And he says that they were all, he had all these manuscripts, Esther, uh, Daniel, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, you know, all these, all these books. And then they were finally brought together in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah after they returned from the captivity of Babylon. And he says, the question is, he says, take at this scene in Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, where the people are gathered around, and Ezra is above the, uh, in front of the people, and they're going, we want the Torah, we want the Torah. And that's how they gathered everything together to form the Hebrew Bible. And Ezra read the Torah to them, and it was like a Taylor Swift concert. They just all went crazy. And they were partying and, and, and sacrificing and eating and feasting because of the Torah. Because the question they weren't asking is, how do we form a government? The question they were asking is, how do we be a people? How do we become a people of God? That's the question they were asking. And this is the same question Isaiah is now asking. How are we going to survive as a people? How are we going to live through this? And he describes, because, because we have been full of iniquity. And he describes two kinds of people here. He says, all your righteous acts are literally, what he said, literal translation here is, they're like minstrel rags. They need to be disposed of. What he's saying here is, you, these, these people are moralists, and we've done all these righteous things. We've, we've done all the things you said to do, all the laws and stuff, and, and these are the people who just know they're right and know that everyone else is wrong, and they're afraid that God's going to destroy them, but in some ways they kind of hope he does just to prove that they're right. <laughs> these are the people who think they've all got it wired, and Isaiah says, no, they're like disposable dirty rags. You've got to get rid of them. And the other people are like the ones who are like, well, I would call them hyper-individualists. They, they have cut themselves off from the life source of the plant and become like a withered leaf, and they're carried away like the wind. And these are the people who don't want anything to do with it. They just separate themselves from God, separate themselves from the people, do whatever I want. It just reminds me of the, of the parable of the sower that we just looked at not too long ago. That the seed comes up in rocky ground but has no roots. Or the seed comes up and there's so many things, anything that takes, takes priority starts to strangle them and they become dry and the wind takes them wherever the wind wants to carry them. 
So you got these two people, these hyper-individualists and these moralists here, and, and Isaiah is saying, they're, they're nothing. The people are desolate. But not only the people, but so is the land. The land is a desert. Jerusalem is, is devastated. The temple is burned. The land and the people are gone. Is there any hope? And the consequences in verses 7 and 9 says, No one evokes your name or makes an effort to take hold of you, for you have rejected us and handed us over to our sins. And then in verse 9, the mirror verse, Lord, do not be angry. Do not hold our sins against us continually. Take a good look at your people, at all of us. This is the despair. And God is hiding. God is silent. And they're saying, don't be silent anymore. He's calling them, please don't be silent. And what he's doing here, what I think it, that means is that, that he has withdrawn his protection from Israel. He is hiding. And what I think he's also saying is, Israel... You don't own me. You can't determine what I do and how I act. You don't take hold on me. And he says, you are like unclean Gentiles. You are not called people. And I think this is what God is doing here. This is part of his judgment. And remember, I've said this before, judgment is when God's love meets injustice. When God's love meets injustice, there is judgment, and part of that judgment is his silence. He is hidden. So right now he is saying no so that he can have a more profound yes. The goal is for a more profound yes, and this may be the way he has to do it. He has to do this so that the Jews, the Israelites, will start to deconstruct what they thought they believed, what they thought we were doing to manipulate God, what they thought we were doing to keep the bargain, and they have to deconstruct that, and they have to be a non-called people so that they can be a renewed called people. He is constantly moving toward the yes, and he's withdrawn to get them to do that. And Isaiah is saying, you know, you did this once, God, why don't you do it again? And if I were to be honest, every one of us in this room would say the same thing. Every one of us would say, you did this before, God, why don't you do it now? You did this before, why don't you, why don't you restore my, my son? You've done this before, why don't you heal my body? You've done this before, why did you take away my spouse? You've done this before, why not now? Why do I have to deal with this? But this is how God relates to us. This is how God has decided to deal with us. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced the same question. He was in a concentration camp, and he had the same question. Yeah, God, you've done this. You're powerful. Why don't you do it again? How come you don't do it again? And he finally came to the conclusion that this is actually increasing his faith, not decreasing it. Trusting God instead of abandoning God. That Jesus was, that God himself was 
pushed out of this world and onto a cross. Elie Wiesel, a Jewish writer, he writes about his experience in a, in a concentration camp. And he talks about being in line and, and, and there, the gallows are hanging people, including children. The Nazis are, hang, are hanging children. And he says a guy behind him says, where is God? Where is God now? And Elie Wiesel writes, he, he said, I heard this voice inside my head. And he said, where is he? Here he is. He's hanging here on the gallows. That's how God is dealing with us. Suffering with us. That's what Bonhoeffer came to conclude. That he's going to suffer and live with us. That he himself became vulnerable and humble. And it's not some cloak where he hides himself and disguises himself. I'm going to pretend I'm humble and pretend I'm vulnerable. No, it's not like that at all. He truly was vulnerable. He truly was humble. Because he decided and he determined that this uncoerced, unforced love and suffering was the way to save us. Not to come down and shake the mountains and burn the adversaries. But they came to shake us. This is the crux of the issue. And finally we get to verse 8. And this is it. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the product of your labor. The images that he paints here have nothing to do with shaking mountains. They have nothing to do with burning down forests. The images that we have of God here is a parent and an artist. And that's how he deals with us. And that's what we are hoping for. This, um, this last week, um, I was in my little office there, and Sue was do, she's do, doing a study, this, and she was studying it and reading 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And she was reading a version that she wasn't familiar with, and she said, can you check this? Is this right? And so I said, sure, being the scholar that I am, you know, right? <laughs> so um, so I, I did look it up, and sure enough, the translation was right. And the translation is this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been fathered by God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the child fathered by Him. By this we know that we love the children of God whenever we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments do not weigh us down because everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world. And this is the conquering power that has conquered the world, our faith. We usually, the normal translation says, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. Well, is is not the verb there. The verb is actually fathering. That's the verb. And I got to think, and this is what it's like, this is what Isaiah is talking about. We have been fathered by God. And so what we have here is the image of a parent a parent who over the time and over years molds our character and shapes our lives because we have been fathered by God himself. And then he goes on to say that we are the artist. We are under the hands of the artist, a potter who molds and shapes us, whose hands are on us. 
And you can't, a potter can't shape a vessel without putting his hands on us. He can't shape a vessel without getting his hands dirty. And so these are the pictures that God, that Isaiah wants us to have. Not a mountain shaker, not a fire that burns through the forest, but a parent who fathers us, who parents us, and an artist who molds us, who lays his hands in contact with us. I said we were going to take a break from Mark. Well, I lied. We're not. We're going to look at, we're going to look at Mark one more time. Because remember this verse started out, Oh God, if you just tear open the heavens and come down and, and shake the mountains. Well, we see in Mark chapter 1, now in those days Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by, the John, by John in the Jordan River. And just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my dear son and in you I take great delight. He did split the heavens, just what Isaiah prophesied. But it looks really different than what Isaiah thought. It was, it was a person who came, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. The only thing quaking when Jesus came were shepherds, right? No mountains were shaking, just, just the shepherds. When he came, his face was not hidden, like we have here in Isaiah. We see his face in the face of a child and the face of a man on a cross. He is not silent. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The temple that was burned was reconstructed. And Jesus said, my body is the temple. All of this thing was fulfilled in Jesus. Just not the way they thought it would be. So is this passage out of place for Christmas? No. It's very much in place because Advent means waiting and longing. And we still wait. We celebrate the birth of the child, but we also wait till every tear is wiped away. He has done this. He is doing it now, and he will do it in the future. So with the build, with the joy of the coming is much more rich and complete because of the longing. I have learned through 66 years with uh, some suffering and some loss that the joy is actually more beautiful because it's more complex. Uh, it doesn't erase the pain, but it does redeem it. And it does help us to look at it maybe a little bit differently than we did before. And this Sunday, the church worldwide is celebrating the first Sunday of Advent. Every Christian on the planet is waiting and longing for this. I can get a little melancholy at Christmas sometimes, uh, especially when your daughter is across the ocean. Uh, I get a little melancholy because people I love are suffering financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Uh, they're suffering with um, 
uh, true, honest pain. They're suffering from dysfunctional families, uh, dysfunctional society. There are political issues. There are social issues. There are global issues. And this is all, all true. But the older I get, I appreciate Advent more than just the Christmas day. I appreciate the, the need to wait and long. I have wept and grieved just like you have. And I have learned to open space up for longing and being okay with that. And being okay with the waiting. Um, it's not fulfilled in the nostalgia of the past. It's not getting all, up, all full of anxiety because of despair in the, in the present. But I'm longing for something better. I am longing for home. And that hope is real. And I know that in spite of the suffering. We have been fathered. Uh, we are in the hands of a loving, creative artist who is molding us. And so I have learned to long for God who has fathered me. I long for, for a Savior who suffers with me, a Savior who weeps with me, and a, suffer, and a, and a Savior who gathers us like a hen gathers her chicks. I long for the hands of a loving artist to be on me, to shape me into something that is at least maybe spiritually beautiful, but also useful. I long to walk in step with the man who walked on the earth and talked about his kingdom. I long to watch out for him and see him so when the holy breaks into the daily, I am surprised, but I am pleased. And I am joyful. This is a time when we open our lives and open our souls with anticipation. Yes, we look forward to the joyful Christmas Day and Christmas Eve. But during Advent, I want to invite you to open your souls, open your life to the longing and the waiting and know how it was fulfilled, and the longing to walk with the Son. We are doing this. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and I think this is like the ideal time to do this, to uh, the beginning of Advent, is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's an invitation uh, by the Spirit uh, to remember and to anticipate. We remember and recognize what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and yet we anticipate his coming again when he will wipe away uh, every tear. He has come to save us and we long for the time when that comes complete. We long for the time when things are put right. And so Paul tells us that we take communion to look backwards and to look forward. And to me that's a perfect picture of what Advent is all about. That we look backward to the Savior of what he has done who he is, the birth, and what he accomplished, and we look forward to who, when he is coming again. And I will read that passage this morning. Just a few verses here. 
He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> 